From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Alaska is wild and big, but to solve this crime, the Alaska State Troopers had to think small. Renowned microscopist Skip Pelinick would ply his craft to find out who killed Judy Bergen. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. August 28, 1993, was a beautiful autumn day for a bicycle ride along the park's highway to Grace Creek at mile 81.5 on the highway. The burnished leaves of fireweed painted the hillsides a deep red, and a carpet of golden leaves covered the ground. In the distance, Mount Denali stood watch over the region, wearing a coat of white from the first snows of the season. When the cyclists noticed a swath of material peeking through a pile of leaves, they stopped to investigate. What they found sent them scurrying back to the highway to flag down a truck and ask the occupants to call the Alaska State Troopers. Alaska State Trooper Michael Sears arrived first on the scene, followed an hour later by the investigating officer Trooper Dallas Massey. The cyclists led authorities to a pile of leaves, and the troopers uncovered a decomposed female body wrapped in a cream-colored sheet. When they unwrapped the body, investigators found a red carpet fiber clinging to the sheet. An autopsy a few days later at the state crime lab in Anchorage identified the remains by examining the individual's fingerprints. The woman wrapped in the sheets and discarded like a bag of garbage in the woods was Judy Bergen, 34. Bergen had been missing since April 25th. Friends portray Judy Bergen as a free spirit and a poet. She moved often and sometimes worked as a deckhand on commercial fishing vessels out of Kodiak or Dutch Harbor. Judy possessed her share of demons, though. Not only did she drink too much alcohol, but she also used hard drugs, including cocaine and heroin. In 1992, Judy met Carl Brown, a drug dealer in Anchorage. Before long, Judy moved in with Carl and even began investing money in some of his drug deals. Judy's friends described Brown's behavior toward Judy as controlling and abusive. He locked Judy's money and drugs in his safe and doled them out to her only when necessary. He wanted to keep Judy dependent on him, but Judy would not willingly give up her freedom, so the two clashed often and violently. 
Friends noticed bruises and cuts on Judy's face, arms, and back, where Brown beat and cut her. One acquaintance reported seeing Judy with a swollen face, a split lip, and a torn shirt after an altercation with Brown. Not long before she vanished, Judy called her mother when she and Brown were in the middle of a physical fight. Judy's mother advised Judy to leave Brown and come home. But Brown grabbed the phone from Judy and told her mother everything was okay and they were not fighting. Approximately one month before she disappeared, Judy walked into a 7-Eleven store on Arctic Boulevard in Anchorage, and the clerk said she was covered with blood and was shaking and crying. The clerk asked her if she would like him to call the police, but she said no. A moment later, Brown entered the store, took Judy by the arm, and departed. The clerk knew both Judy and Brown because they often shopped in the store. But he said this occasion was the last time he ever saw Judy Bergen. Friends and family members said Judy told them she was terrified of Brown and wanted to leave him. Since he controlled her money, though, she did not know how she could get away from him or what he would do if he caught her. As her situation worsened, her drug use increased, clouding her mind and leading to lapses in judgment. On the afternoon of April 23, 1993, Judy met two of her friends, Simone Greenway and another woman known as Monique, at O'Toole's restaurant in the Samovar Inn in Anchorage. Judy showed the bartender, Cheryl Peterson, bruises on her body and told Peterson she feared Brown. Judy claimed she was leaving him and said she took some money from him and bought a plane ticket for Hawaii. Judy's friends left the bar after 45 minutes, but Judy stayed and continued to drink. Judy later went to the hotel room of a man who sold scrimshaw knives. And when she returned, Peterson said she seemed intoxicated and high on some drug. Peterson gave Judy something to eat and then called a cab for her. She told Judy to go directly to the airport, but Judy said she needed to pick up her belongings at Brown's residence. Peterson believed Judy stole either money or drugs from Brown, and she knew Brown would be furious with Judy if he caught her stealing from him. The next morning at 11.30 a.m. on April 24th, Judy called Simone Greenway. She placed the call from Brown's house, and it lasted for 12 minutes. According to Greenway, Judy called her to confirm she would come to Greenway's home in Big Lake the following day to care for Greenway's children, while Greenway went to the hospital for wrist surgery. Judy never arrived at Greenway's house the next day, and Greenway called Judy's family and friends, including Carl Brown, looking for her. Brown said Judy left while he was taking a shower and said she did not return. He said he had no idea where she went. Judy's mother called jails and hospitals, but no one knew what had happened to Judy Bergen. Not long after Judy disappeared, Carl Brown changed the carpet in his bedroom from a red-toned, multicolored shag carpet to a gray pile. Brown's sons helped him remove the old rug, and they later told troopers that their father wanted to install a new carpet because the old carpet was worn and smelled like pet urine. 
The medical examiner determined Judy died from multiple blows to her head with a blunt object, possibly a baseball bat. Troopers had little physical evidence to help them find her killer, but Carl Brown soon emerged as their most likely suspect. Investigators released information about the discovery of a body at Gray's Creek, but they did not release the identity of the victim. When Massey first interviewed Brown on September 4th, he identified himself as an officer from missing persons. Nevertheless, Brown asked Massey if he was investigating Bergen's death. Unless he was involved in her murder, how did Brown know Judy was dead? Troopers did not release the identity of the body found at Gray's Creek until September 14, 1993. Massey put Brown at the top of his list of persons of interest in the violent murder of Judy Bergen, but he lacked the hard evidence he needed to press charges against Brown. The sheet wrapped around Bergen's body and the red carpet fiber clinging to the sheet were the only forensic clues the authorities had. Crime lab techs noted the sheet looked different from sheets sold in stores. The cream-colored sheet had a Martex brand and an orange stitching along the hem. Troopers soon discovered the Sheraton Hotel in Anchorage used this type of sheet in the early to mid-1980s, and Carl Brown worked at the Sheraton Hotel in the early 1980s. While suggestive, this information still did not provide the hard evidence the troopers needed. I want to take a short break to thank the creative folks at the puzzle game app Best Fiends. Along with my patrons, Best Fiends provides me with the funds I need for researching my stories and maintaining and promoting this podcast. There are a lot of upfront and hidden costs associated with podcasting, and I appreciate your support. According to the calendar, it is autumn but I began wearing my winter coat in August, and we experienced one of the coldest Septembers on record. The mountain peaks often sported a dusting of snow by now, but this year the snow level continues to inch lower and lower, and soon it will cover my yard at sea level. No problem. On these cold fall days, I snuggle under a fleece throw and invite my best fiends out to play for a few minutes. Okay, sometimes I play for nearly an hour. Best Fiends is a bright, cheerful game that always warms me up and makes me smile. At the lower levels, Best Fiends seems deceptively simple, as you collect cute characters who help you defeat the slugs and gather flowers, strawberries, leaves, mushrooms, and water. But the puzzles grow more challenging as you progress and soon you find yourself blowing up bombs to complete the tasks and move on to the next level. I used to fly through the puzzles, but anymore, I rarely solve a level on the first try, even with the exerted effort of my best fiends. If you haven't played Best Fiends yet, I suggest you give it a try. The game always improves my mood and helps energize me. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. 
trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Nearly a year later, on September 9, 1994, troopers learned Brown had moved from the house where he lived when Judy disappeared. They obtained permission to search the house and pulled up the gray pile carpet in the bedroom. Underneath the new carpet, they found two tufts of red shag carpet. Knowing this would probably be the only tangible evidence he would find linking Brown to the brutal murder of Judy Bergen, Massey sent the carpet fibers to the lab of Skip Palinick in Chicago. Palinick refers to himself as a microscopist, and he has provided his expertise on many high-profile cases, including the Oklahoma City bombing, the Jean Benet Ramsey case in Boulder, Colorado, the Unabomber, and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. His expertise ranges from identifying art forgeries to determining whether terrorists caused the explosion of a Canadian oil company's pipeline in Yemen. Scotland Yard, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and the FBI have all hired Palinick to help them examine the minutiae of a crime scene and hopefully find the one microscopic clue to solve the case. Palinick likes to say, small things tell big stories. As soon as the carpet fibers arrived at Palinick's lab, Palinick went to work. He immediately noticed the carpet contained seven types of fibers. One was large and round, a second appeared small and round, and the other five displayed a variety of three leaf clover shapes. Palinick noted the cheap carpet consisted of miscellaneous junk fibers. Mainstream carpet manufacturers remove these junk fibers and then process them into low-quality composites. Because these composites contain whatever fibers happen to be available at the time, no two composites are alike. When Palinick compared the rug fibers found on the sheet covering Bergen's body to the ones taken from Brown's bedroom, he discovered both samples contain the same seven types of fibers. Also, the same combination of dyes colored the fibers. Palinick dug even deeper, though. He noticed one of the seven types of fibers was imperfectly dyed, and the color soaked only partway through the fiber. This anomaly occurred in both the sample from the body and the sample from Brown's bedroom. Another one of the fibers had tiny bleached-out areas, and again, this fiber appeared the same in both samples. Pelinick told Massey that the fibers came from the same carpet, and the carpet was unique. It was unlike any other carpet in the world. At trial, Palinick testified the carpet fragments could only have come from a single sheet of carpet in a once-in-a-lifetime combination of fibers and dye. In June 1996, troopers Massey and Jerry Graham re-interviewed Brown. Brown told the troopers he and Bergen were very close, and he would never hurt her. 
When the investigators asked him how he knew Birkin was dead when they first interviewed him, Brown said he read in the paper that someone bludgeoned her to death. The troopers knew they did not release information about the manner of Bergen's death. Only the killer, or someone he confided in, could know how Judy Bergen died. When the troopers told Brown this information was never publicized, he said he must have heard about Bergen's death from a friend. The grand jury indicted Brown for first-degree murder and for tampering with evidence. A jury convicted Brown on both counts, but Brown's attorney appealed his conviction, stating the Superior Court erred in several of its evidentiary rulings and its restrictions on his final argument. The Court of Appeals of the State of Alaska agreed with the prosecution on most counts of the appeal, but the court found for the defense on one critical issue— Brown's attorney argued that the Superior Court denied him from presenting evidence about other possible suspects who had a motive for killing Judy Bergen. This evidence included rumors suggesting Simone Greenway's ex-husband, Dave Getz, bragged he ordered a hit on Bergen from his jail cell. Other rumors pointed at Judy's brother, Jim Bergen, who some suggested might have killed his sister over an inheritance dispute. The court ruled the judge should have let the defense present these alternate suspects, and the Court of Appeals overturned Brown's conviction. The prosecution retried Brown, and the jury again found him guilty of the first-degree murder of Judy Bergen. DNA provided no help in solving this crime. Brown and Bergen lived together, so a defense attorney could easily explain away Brown's DNA on or in Bergen's body. Brown's bloody fingerprints at the crime scene could have solved the case, but the troopers found no bloody fingerprints. Brown's fingerprints on the murder weapon also would have provided conclusive evidence, but authorities never found the murder weapon. Investigators also did not discover Bergen's blood splattered across the walls at Brown's house. Carpet fibers proved to be the only forensic evidence conclusively tying Carl Brown to the murder of Judy Bergen. Thanks to Skip Palahniuk, whose skills and deductive reasoning matched those of Sherlock Holmes, two pieces of carpet fiber were enough to convict Carl E. Brown for the brutal murder of Judy Bergen. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.